the truth that we just sang, that He is worthy, right? That all together, right? Lovely and worthy. And that's the essence of, of Jesus Christ. And so Christ is lovely, He's worthy, and He is the light that has come into the world to shine truth upon the world so that we might live in the hope of the resurrection. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Acts 26. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to, to open there. If not, go ahead, and, and we're going to be following along together. But I want you, as you're doing that, to take a moment and think about all the comforts that you've kind of been afforded in this life. So if you think about the comforts that you've been given, just kind of quietly think upon those things. It could be that shelter in the midst of coldness. It could be an abundance of food. It could be that the medicine that we have in the United States uh, surpasses what is often experienced throughout the world. But I want you to just take a minute to think about those comforts that you've been afforded in this life. As you think about those comforts, I want you to ask yourself, what priority does comfort have when making decisions about your life? Where you live, what you do, and the reason for why you do what you do. How much of that is actually based on being comfortable? Now, switch your thinking just for a minute. And I want you to ask yourself, what's your response to trials? What's your response to persecution for your faith? What's your response to suffering? And beyond the trite answers that God will get you through it, do you really believe that perseverance has a redemptive purpose or is it just God playing games with your life? If God is sovereign, then He can change my circumstances, and the fact that He doesn't change my circumstances must mean that God's goodness is not as good as I think. For many of us, that statement is often how we feel in the midst of trials. God, you have the power to change my circumstances, so why don't you? God, where are you? Where are you and why aren't you closer? And what we really mean is, where are you and why aren't you doing it my way? Well, what we're going to see this morning as we pick up our series in Acts, and we've been breaking down our series in Acts, and we're going to finish up Acts this month, but we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 26. And if you recall for a second, when we left this off way back in June, so hopefully you can remember that last sermon. I'm teasing, by the way. What was happening was Paul was put on trial for sharing the hope of the gospel or the hope of the resurrection in the temple. 
And after having gone into the temple, he was persecuted, he was beaten, and he was put on trial. And he went before the governor Felix, and then he went before the governor Festus. And most recently what we saw was the injustice of humanity and the justice of Christ. That Christ's justice was right and holy and human justice becomes corrupted. Well, where we're picking off this morning or picking up where we left off is Festus has now brought in King Agrippa and Bernice and Paul was ushered into an auditorium in the latter part of, of, of chapter 25 of Acts. And it was with great kind of pomp and circumstance the king comes in and brought, Paul is brought in kind of amidst this, this crowd and this great spectacle. And nobody wants to really declare Paul as innocent. They just don't like what he's saying. And yet, the Roman or the Gentile governors cannot find out or cannot see why the Jews are seeking to persecute him. And so this morning, we're going to not read the scripture in its entirety. We're going to read it as we go through the text. But at the heart of the passage this morning is the idea that persevering in faith, even during persecution... Persevering in faith, even during persecution, points to the truth of the resurrection, the hope of the gospel. Persevering in faith, even during persecution, points to the truth of the resurrection, the hope of the gospel. It's the idea that persevering, we persevere because of the resurrection and the hope that we have in the resurrection. So, in chapter 26, starting in verses 1 through 3, this is what we're told. It says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So Paul now has come in to the center of this auditorium, and he's been given the opportunity to speak. So he dives in, and he says, listen, Agrippa, I'm glad it's you that I'm talking to. Paul's now been in prison for over two years for something that he didn't do. Now, for most of us, if we're imprisoned for a wrong, the way that we react is not one of, uh, yeah, let me give you my defense. I'm looking forward to talking to you, right? Most of the time, what we're looking to do is say, hey, listen, you guys are completely and absolutely utter wrong. You're buffoons. I've been wrongly imprisoned for these years. Get me out. But Paul says, listen, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. And he knows that King Agrippa understands the Jewish controversies and customs. King Agrippa's grandfather was Herod. He understood. 
Bernice was not one who, she knew the Jewish customs and traditions, but was an immoral woman. She was actually his sister. And they were in a relationship that was immoral. But Paul relished the opportunity to speak and to share the gospel. And so in verse 4, he says this, My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King." Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Here's what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, listen, I was one of the most foremost scholars amongst you. You know that. I was of the strictest sect. I was a Pharisee. And what I'm telling you is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of God. And he is the resurrection the resurrection was actually fulfillment of that promise. In Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Speaking of the Messiah, he says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This was a picture of the Messiah to come. Jesus is the fulfillment of that picture, of that promise that God was giving to the Israelites. And he's saying, listen, I want you to know That this is not some strange teaching, but it's the fulfilled promise of Israel. The very hope that God had given to his people. Now Paul wants it to be known that he didn't buy it either. That initially his response was not one. of receiving with humility and with acceptance. And he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." What Paul's saying is, listen, I was a part of those who refused to see Jesus as the Messiah, even to the point of murdering those, casting my vote to murder those who were proclaiming his good news. What he's saying is, I too am like you. I was once the pure persecutor. And now I'm the persecuted. 
what's changed. Now what's unique is that Paul then moves this place where he says, listen, you need to see that I'm a sinner. I wasn't just a mild sinner. I was one that was in agreement with the murder of those who were innocent. And he says, in this connection here in verse 12, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant servant and witness to the things in which you've seen me and to those which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. But what does Jesus actually mean here when he says you're pressing against the goads? What does he mean when he says it's hard for you to kick against the goads? What he's actually saying here is you can't really fight the will of God without difficulty. You can't press against the will of God without difficulty. That's what he means. He's saying, you're fighting against my will, and it is not easy. Let me be clear. When you fight against my will, my will will still prevail. And he takes that, and we're told here that Paul here is momentarily, we know from other passages in Scripture, that he was blinded by this bright light that appeared, but he says that he appeared for the purpose of making him a witness and a servant. Now notice, who encounters Paul? Jesus. The saving work of Christ begins with Jesus. Jesus coming to us. It's at the heart of John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who came? Jesus came. That's an awesome, beautiful passage. It's a hope that we have a Savior that pursues us, that comes to us. So what he lays out then is this aspect of the importance of persevering in God's will through faith. And what we see here are two primary things or two primary importances of persevering in God's will through faith. We often see perseverance as a way for God to reveal himself to us. And we know that that is actually true in James James 1 says, consider it all joy, my brethren, right? When we experience various trials. Why? So that he can perfect us so that we're lacking in nothing. But there's another purpose for persevering. And what we see here is that 
the purpose goes beyond our righteousness. You see, the very first thing that we see is that God called us by Jesus to be His servant and witness of the gospel to the nation. The importance of persevering in God's will through faith, the first reason is that we're called by Jesus to be His servant and witness of the gospel to all nations. We're called by Jesus to be His servant and witness of the gospel to all nations. Andrew Marquez says this, he said, we need to have perseverance even through persecution that proves we believe in the resurrection. That our hope is not in this life. Our hope is not that we simply extend this life, but our hope is in the life that we have in Christ eternally. It's actually the resurrection that gives us that hope because it's through the resurrection that Jesus overcame the power of death, granting eternal life. You see, the deliverance of the gospel is clear here. What does the, the deliverance of the gospel or of salvation actually accomplish? Well, notice what he says. He says three things. He says, to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. It releases people from spiritual blindness and the power of Satan. Salvation releases people from spiritual blindness and the power of Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who opens our eyes to see His truth. It is through Him that we experience His truth. He takes us out of darkness and moves us into light. The hope of salvation is now what we once were blinded in darkness, we now walk in light. We now walk in truth. We now walk in His hope. And He says here that we're no longer under the power of Satan, but we're under the power of God. Remember in Scripture where he talks about that we are, we are basically children of our father, the devil, apart from Jesus? We actually have power to experience victory over sin in Christ. Salvation is not just an event. It's his ongoing power and sanctifying work in your life. You have been saved, and He continues to save. 2 Timothy 1, 8-10 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the peering of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. How do we have life? How do we have eternal life? It's not in works, not the works of man. It is in the work of Christ and the cross. And it is through this grace that God extends his salvation. 
Nothing of which we can count of ourselves, but of which he has done fully and completely. Notice the other aspect of the deliverance of the the gospel. Not only does it release people from spiritual blindness and the power of Satan, but it forgives sins. He says that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. And then it grants salvation through faith, not works. Notice it says, in a place among those who are sanctified or set apart by faith in me. There will never be a righteous deed good enough to present yourself as holy before a holy and righteous God. It is through faith that then Christ grants us his righteousness that was accomplished on the cross and completed. Christ going to the cross as righteous, dying and bearing the weight of our sin, the penalty, taking on the curse. Galatians 3, 13-14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. God has granted that his Messiah would die and rise again, but more than that, that his spirit would then reside in each of those who confessed Jesus as Lord. Ephesians 2, 1-10 says, And you were dead in the trespasses of sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is it now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We are his witnesses. Why do we persevere even in persecution? Because for the believer, we are his servant and witnesses of the gospel to all the nations. What if the only way that the gospel is expressed to a person is by your presence in a hospital bed for three months? What if the only encounter that a person has in the gospel is your willingness to still love in the face of persecution? Many of you guys know uh, Derek Carr, familiar with Derek Carr, and he's the quarterback for the Raiders. That makes him special in the first place. (laughs) But Derek Carr is open about his faith. When Derek Carr was in college, he was confronted by a teammate that simply said to him, hey, you profess Christ, but you do everything else that we do. And he said it was that day in his life where he realized that God was desiring something more for him. And he said from that day on, he he made a point that 
he would actually live out the faith that God had called him to be in the locker room and on the field. This week, some of you heard that the Raiders' top wide receiver, his draft pick last year, number 12 overall, was in a drunk driving accident, driving 156 miles an hour. Slammed in the back of a car, killed a woman, car burst into flames, and she died. Immediately, the team released Henry Ruggs, and the media was all over Ruggs, and probably rightfully so. There was a lost life, a family that was grieving, a poor decision that led. But when everybody else was condemning, Derek Carr came forward in the press and in the media and simply said, I grieve for the family that lost their loved one, and I'm with them. And I grieve for Henry Ruggs. And if nobody else will love Henry Ruggs, I will. He needs it. The truth is that God has called us to be our witnesses for him. And what I read after reading this on Facebook and looking down at the comments were all these comments who for years, because Derek Carr has not led the Raiders to a championship, hey, we need to get a new guy. He's out of here. Almost every single comment was, this is the guy we need. He's the real deal. His faith is real. They don't have to know much, but they know that his faith has changed his life. And all of a sudden, he's no longer a burden, but rather an asset. Because they see the hope of his faith in his life. Secondly, the first is that we're called by Christ for his purpose. The second is that the submitted life to Christ, which declares the gospel truth of his resurrection, demands a response. The submitted life to Christ, which declares the gospel truth of his resurrection, demands a response. The submitted life declares. That's what it does. It declares both in the way that we live and it declares through our words. So how do we experience the gospel? So if the gospel delivers us from spiritual blindness, it delivers us from the power of Satan, it forgives sins, and it's applied through faith, how do we actually experience the gospel? Well, the way that we experience the gospel of Christ, the hope of Christ's salvation, is to repent, which means to turn from sin. So we repent of sin, or we turn from sin, and we put faith, or we turn to Christ. So we repent of sin and put faith in Christ who rose from the dead for our sake.
Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, Because of you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. At the heart of the gospel is the salvation that we repent and then put our faith in Christ. Jesus put it this way when he started his ministry in Mark. He said, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's his call for each of us is that we repent of our sinfulness, not just our sin that we did yesterday, but our our sinfulness. We are sinners. We repent of that sin and then turn not just away from sin, but we turn to Christ. You can turn to all kinds of other things, right? I mean, I can say, yeah, I'm going to turn from fast food and then turn right to drinking soda 24 hours a day. I'm not going to see much change. Repentance means I turn from sin, but then I turn towards Christ. It's confessing Him as the Lord of my life. The other aspect then of the gospel is not just one of salvation, but it's ongoing work. We stand firm in righteousness and Christ's purpose through the Holy Spirit. So the gospel is first one of repentance and belief or repentance and faith. The second is then standing in firm in righteousness and Christ's purpose through the Holy Spirit. You see, when we are those who confess Christ as Lord, we are granted the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation. That's what it says in Ephesians 1. But now that He's a guarantee, what we were promised was His helper. In John 16, 12 through 13, this is what it says. And it tells us about the work of the Spirit and why Christ has given us His Spirit. And this is what it says. It says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for for He will take away what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit of God is declaring to you God's truth. He is actually empowering you to live out His truth. Now notice, it says here in verse 21, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. How was it that Paul stood firm even amidst persecution? It was the Spirit of God. It was the power of God at work within him. When we stand in the face of persecution or we persevere through experiences that are way outside of our comfort, the power of God is seen, the Spirit of God is made known. 
and the gospel is declared. When our greatest desire and function is just to get away from uncomfortableness, to just find comfort, we actually thwart the gospel of God. We don't endure for the sake of endurance. We persevere for the sake of Christ. That it is Christ in us that God is wanting to reveal. One of those things that really as believers in Christ, we need to change. The first we mentioned a few weeks ago, we need to not use the word, my truth. Don't do it. You rob God of the truth. Truth is truth. It's not objective. I mean, not subjective. But the second piece of that is we need to be a people that don't look at one another and go, man, you are so strong. That actually should insult us. People walking around saying, man, you've got great strength. Or you're such a strong woman. You're such a strong guy. That ought to cause us restlessness in our own spirit. When we respond to that and accept that, what we are actually doing is robbing God of His greatest strength in the midst of our weakness. He says that when we are weak, He is strong. As followers of Christ... When we're in situations that are difficult and people say that, we have a wonderful opportunity to point them to Jesus rather than robbing the glory for ourselves. We would be far better to say, it's wonderful to see God's strength being lived out in you. I'm so grateful for your faith. Isn't there a difference with that? See the difference in humility? You see, we need to stand firm in righteousness. And the only way that we can do that is by the help of the Holy Spirit. David Platt puts it this way. He says, our churches are far more American than they are biblical. Far more concerned in the preservation of our lives in this country than they are with the exaltation of our Lord among the nations. Paul is concerned with the exaltation of Christ among the nations. We need to be con concerned with the same thing as Paul. The exaltation of Christ among the nations. And that may mean that I need to persevere in the midst of persecution for my faith. It may mean that I need to persevere in the midst of my trials so that the gospel and power of God may be seen. So what's our response then? Well, this message, which I think grants us hope, had some mixed responses, didn't it? Look what it says in verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. 
A better translation is, you are a madman. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Well, Festus just looks at him and says, you're a madman. You talk about the resurrection of Christ, you're nuts. That's a response that we're going to receive. And it may be a response that maybe you've had to the resurrection. Notice Agrippa, though. Agrippa's response is a little bit different. Agrippa actually sees the truth of God, is actually somewhat convinced that it is true. And when he says this phrase, would you persuade me in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? That's probably better translated as in a short time, you might persuade me to be a Christian. It's not a statement of hope. It's an acknowledgement of the truth with the, the reservation of lordship. Agrippa believes, but doesn't confess. It's a direct contrast to Paul's life. Agrippa's just heard what might come if he gives his life to Christ. And rather than seeing Christ as more valuable than his own life and his own position and his own comfort, he leaves it with a little statement that in a little short time, yeah, if we had more time, you might be able to convince me that this is the way out to go, but not now. And I'm not going to give you that time. That's what's happening. Paul, on the other hand, when Christ confronts him on the road to Damascus, when he saw the reality of Jesus and his supremacy in his own face, his beauty, his loveliness, his grace. Why would the God of all creation come to me, a murderer, a sinner? Paul dropped everything to follow him to the point of persecution, to the point of being tried for the purpose of being killed and said it was worth it. This gospel that's being proclaimed is not mamby-pamby. It's not come to Jesus and your life will get easier and simpler. It's a gospel that says, come to Jesus. And you have the privilege of being his servant and witness to a world that is in desperate need of him. It's a gospel that says, come to Jesus because you have life eternal in him. 
and that this life means nothing except obedience to Him. Our lives are meant to honor Jesus. And in perseverance and in persecution, our purpose does not change. So, when you're boldly confronted with the gospel truth of Christ's resurrection, are you like Festus, Agrippa, or Paul? See, only Paul experiences the hope of God's promised salvation. I think it's easy as followers of Christ, especially in a comfort society, to vacillate between Festus and Paul. But make no doubt, Jesus had strong words when he spoke about those who were lukewarm. He said he vomited them out. Well, the king rose and he journeyed along with his wife and along with Festus. And they make this conclusion in verse 31. This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. The other importance there about our perseverance for the sake of the gospel is that humans have no power to save. Salvation is only through the resurrection hope of Jesus. It does not matter if you think you are righteous, and it does not matter if somebody else thinks you are righteous. They cannot declare you as one of Christ. Only Jesus can. And it only comes through the hope of the resurrection. So may we be a people who persevere in faith, who live out our faith, not seeking comfort, but seeking unashamedly and wholeheartedly the purpose and glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, as we prepare to take communion this morning, the truth of your resurrection is proclaimed in lives that are changed and lives that are committed to the proclamation of your truth. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the fulfilled promise, a promise to a people that you've not forgotten, a promise to a, a people who have turned their backs on you, of each, each one of us, have been or are. This morning, may we reconcile with God. Lord, if we've never responded to your grace, may we seriously consider the implications of your grace. If we've confessed you as Lord and we're living as Festus, seeking after our comfort, putting our position putting ourself and what we desire ahead of you and what you desire. God, may you work in our hearts to be wholly and completely submitted to you. Father, if we 
are submitted to you. We're ready to go wherever you send us. May we not become discouraged by the enemy, but may we be empowered by your spirit to stand firm, confidently knowing that your purposes are being worked out. Thank you, Jesus, for your resurrection. And we ask this in your name. Amen. What we're going to do at this time is we're going to take communion together. And communion is for those who have put their faith in Jesus. And so if you haven't done that, if you have not said, yes, I'm, I'm a sinner and I'm choosing to follow Christ, I'm confessing him as Lord, as we just talked about this morning, then what I would do is ask you not to take communion. You can, you can stay right where you're at to not participate in it. And there's a reason for that. Uh, Hebrews tells us that when we, we take the communion, what we're doing is we are actually identifying with Christ and his death and resurrection, but identifying as the body of Christ. We're sharing in the fellowship that we now have as followers of Jesus through Jesus' death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit at work within each one of us as one. And so when we take that communion apart from knowing Jesus, the Bible says we actually drink upon his wrath because we're drinking of something that we have yet to receive or respond to in faith and repentance. So this morning, I, I want to share that with you and ask that if you don't know Christ, if you're not ready to, to make that decision or haven't made that decision, that you sit, that you consider those things. If you have, then I want us to participate together in the sharing of, of the cup and of the bread. So we're just going to take a minute. I just ask that you take a minute, just prayerfully prepare your hearts we can take about a minute or so to just prayerfully consider our hearts before the Lord and wrestle with that question. Are you Festus? Are you Agrippa? Or are you Paul?